Well, the, uh, the topic that uh, I was asked to speak on today is finding themes of exile in the Word. And I have a strong sense that everybody in this room at some point in the last couple years has felt to some extent like the church, uh, that your church, that you as a Christian are in some way in exile. I, I bet that's the case. I'm a little convicted by uh, what uh, Dave has been saying and that I, I strongly suspect that there have been people who have felt like they're in exile their entire life and their entire ministry. And I'm only beginning to feel like I might be in exile in the last year or two. Um, that probably should be pretty convicting. Who have I overlooked? Those among us in American Christianity uh, who have felt marginalized their entire ministries. Um, and so that, I think, is something that, that should weigh heavily uh, on me and on us this morning. But I think probably everybody in this room at some point in the last couple years has felt like, to some extent, you were in exile as part of Christianity in America or as part of the church. Um, in the summer of 2015, seems a long time ago in some respects, but in June of 2015, many of you will remember uh, that the Supreme Court handed down a decision, uh, the Obergefell decision, where uh, gay marriage became uh, legalized in America. In fact, uh, it is the requirement of the land. And for many of us, especially those who are the evangelism, I think, part of the, of the donut, felt deeply uh, shocked and marginalized uh, by that. The over 50 group that Steve mentioned felt deeply uh, marginalized within American Christianity by that decision. I was uh, completely in awe of how quickly the situation uh, in America with regard to that particular issue seemed to have completely flipped. When Barack Obama took office in 2009, his official position was that marriage should be between one man and one woman. And yet before he even finished in office, before he got very, you know, finished his second term, uh, the whole situation legally uh, had changed within the United, United States. That was profoundly alienated, uh, alienating to a, a very large number of Christians in North America. In fact, uh, I believe uh, that was the reason why Steve uh, preached a series uh, in, the, in the months after that decision on exile uh, from 1 Peter. Now, he can correct me uh, later on. But in fact, I wonder if to some extent that whole chain of events is why exile uh, became the topic of this festival preaching. Again, um, he can correct me later, but that's, I'm gonna, he's not, probably not going to correct me now so I can keep on with my, my, uh, what I plan to speak. <laughs> but uh, that sermon series on 1 Peter, which, which is one of the texts, Finding Themes of Exile in the World, in the Word, um, 1 Peter is one of those key texts in the Bible uh, that talks about us being strangers and aliens and, and that is a, a wonderful preaching text when you're, you're feeling the exile, when you're feeling the exile. And so there were many, many, maybe most Christians uh, in the United States began to feel like, what, what is happening? I thought this was a Christian nation. I thought that we were founded on Christian principles, and what's happening here? And of course, that whole trajectory didn't just start in 2015. Um, evangelical Christianity has been feeling that at least since the 70s when Roe v. Wade um, uh, came out on abortion. And so for the last uh, decades, evangelical Christianity in, in the United States has been feeling increasingly uh, alienated or in some way at, at 
at a disconnect from what was happening in uh, the nation at large. That, that's at least my analysis of what has been going on in the psyche of some. And, and the, the, uh, the, the uh, Obergefell decision was kind of uh, the climax, as it were, of a trajectory that had been building in, in American Christianity uh, for several, several decades. So there's a good chance that, that uh, most, if not everybody in this room, felt alienated from their country uh, as a result of some of those decisions. Now, that might be the, the donut part. There are some of you in here who maybe are the whole part uh, of the donut who felt deeply alienated last year during the whole election. Now, I, I'm not in any way wanting to comment on politics or to take sides. Um, I was told when I was in seminary that with your spouse, if you say, I feel, that can't be disputed. Now, you can, you can, you can dispute... You can dispute the facts of the case all you want, but if someone says they feel some way, they feel that way, and that's real, you know. Uh, and you have to treat I feel statements as if they're real, even if you disagree with the facts of the case. And so there's, there's no disputing that there is a large segment of American Christianity. I think the, the donut hole part, I think the under 30 uh, part, I think there's no disputing that there is a large number of especially younger Christians uh, in the United States who felt deeply alienated uh, by the events of the election last year. Now, again, I'm not taking sides, at least that's not my intention, uh, but I, I, I suspect that there were, there were a lot of Christians who wondered how can uh, these things be said that are being said, things that seem hateful toward refugees or, or things that seem hateful toward the people of color, things that seem hateful toward people from Mexico, things that seem, marg that seem to marginalize women, or, or things that, that don't seem to, that seem to favor those who have and to dismiss those who don't have. Now, again, there's no doubt that there are large numbers of American Christians who feel, who felt that way and maybe feel that way. And their sense of alienation, uh, this is, I think, interesting, not just with the nation, because this particular group never really felt like America. God, God and country is not the, the motto of this group. This group never looked at the country as God's, God's country. This group always sensed a certain distance between them as Christians and the nation as what's profoundly alienated about, about this group is they feel alienated from the church. They feel like the church went the wrong direction during this process. And they're wondering, what denomination am I in? Does my denomination even know the heart of Christ? And they feel not just profoundly or alienated from their country, but they feel alienated from the churches uh, that they are part of, many of them. And many of them are silent, and they're wondering, how could all these people that I respect have, have gone in a certain direction and not seem to have been particularly bothered by it. Now, again, that's an I feel statement. You can disagree with whether or not they should have felt that way, but there's no doubt that there are large numbers of young Christians who have felt that way within the last year. Thus, my claim that no matter who you are in this room, I have a strong suspicion that at some point in the last couple, five years, you have felt deeply alienated uh, from the context and the culture that you are a part of. Now, I think I, think I have two insights this morning. 
Um, and so here's the first one. Now, the nice thing about conferences like this, you're gonna, you're gonna hear different speakers and all of them are gonna say things that are true even if they contradict each other. Um, because, uh, b- because the truth is a many splendored thing, right? Um, there's this angle, there's this angle, but here, here is an angle, a truth that I believe the Lord gave me in preparation for today, and it's this. We are always in exile. We may not always feel it, but we are always in exile, and we have always been in exile, whether we felt it or not. And the passage that I have just somehow sent to another world What am I hitting wrong? Arrow on the right-hand side. That's what I think I'm clicking. This is the book of Hebrews, right here. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11. Which, which one do, should I click? Up, down, side? There we go. Okay. I pushed the same place, just for the record. Okay. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, I think, and I've never, you know, I, I, I've studied Hebrews a bit, and this is the first time this really came home to me in, in preparation for today. By faith, Abraham made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. They admitted, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they admitted that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth looking for a country of their own. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. What really jumped out to me was this line, they were strangers on earth. Now, there might be some who would interpret that as in the land, and of course, that's what Genesis is thinking about, they're strangers in the land, they're in a country of promise that's, that's not theirs. But as I consider the book of Hebrews as a, as a whole, whole, if you look in the very next chapter, Hebrews chapter 12, um, the author talks about how a shaking is coming, that God will shake that which is created. And it dawned on me that actually earth is probably a good translation here. We have been in exile since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and we will be in exile until Christ returns and makes his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We are a people who are always in exile because sin reigns upon this earth. That is the first insight that I believe the Lord gave me as I was looking at this. There's some profound implications to this. If you trace this back, it suggests that even when Israel was in control of their land, true Israel was in exile. Even when Israel had control, they had their own king, they had their own judges, they were ruling on earth, there was a true Israel that was not the Israel that was in exile. That is the implication of following out this passage. Now, Jesus said something in Matthew 7 about narrow is the way and few there be that find it. I'll I'll be honest, even a couple years ago, I thought, well, that's, you know, that was true in his context, but that's that's not true in America where most people are are Christians. I I mean, I I really, it's hard for me to remember thinking that way, but I, I distinctly remember three or four years ago thinking, well, that might not be true in every, you know, in every place. But I've really come to believe that maybe Jesus is right. It's, it's, a, 
Maybe, maybe the genuine, true followers of Christ are, are never as many as they may appear on the outside. That's kind of a depressing thought. And um, I, I hope that there's more than less. Ed Stetzer, I don't know if you know Ed Stetzer. Ed Stetzer uh, uh, did a little analysis of the rise of the nuns. We were talking, uh, not nuns as in habits, but nuns as in N-O-N-E-S. And um, we were talking yesterday about the 40% um, who are, are not claiming to be Christians or anything anymore, the rise of this category within American Christianity of people who, who don't claim any religious uh, affiliation, the fastest growing group, I think, uh, within America. Now, Ed Stetzer um, did an analysis of this, and I thought his, his claims were intriguing. He suggests that actually... Uh, true Christianity, or how did he put it, the, the kind of vibrant Christianity, serious, let me call it serious Christianity. He, he claims that serious Christianity is actually not on the wane at all, that serious Christianity is actually on the rise, and that what we're seeing is those who were nominal Christians, who didn't really take their faith very serious at all, are just coming out and making it clear what their, where their heart is, and that what we're seeing is is the kind of uh, reality of who really has faith and who doesn't. He suggests that only about 30% of American Christianity is really very serious about their faith. Now, I don't know the numbers, but that does seem to fit. Narrow is the way, and few there be that find it. And it would suggest, if that's true, that at any point in history, there are an exiled group that is not the majority uh, of the true faith. Now, I'm not going to uh, suggest how we might find out who is true and who isn't, and uh, uh, perhaps, uh, perhaps the Lord uh, will, will uh, have another word for us later in one of the speakers. Dave, actually, it's not that Dave is my uh, introducer. He's actually the cleanup to mess, clean up the mess I leave uh, after, after my talk. But this was the first, the first truth, I think, that really came home to me as I was preparing, and that is, is that I should not think that I was ever not in exile. I've always been in exile. I just didn't feel it until recently. And so that's the first truth. You know, the situation of Hebrews is debated, but Hebrews is one of those texts that you may want to preach about being in exile. Uh, as I understand the book of Hebrews, there are a couple ways to understand it, and different scholars go different ways. Um, one of the nice things about ambiguity is you can preach true things from the text from completely different interpretations. Um, as I read Hebrews, and this, this may not be true, but I think I've gotten some truths from it. As I read Hebrews, Hebrews is written to a group that are deeply uh, despondent because Jerusalem has been destroyed. Um, and that Hebrews is written to basically say, why are you worried about the fact that we have no sanctuary? The sanctuary never really took away sins. It was always just an illustration of what Jesus was going to do on the cross. And it was always an illustration of the true tabernacle, which is in heaven, where Jesus has gone with his eternal spirit and with his own blood. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. Why are you worried about the fact that there's no temple? Jesus has taken care of it, and that was always God's plan. That's, that's how I understand Hebrews. But you can see this is a group of people who are deeply distressed about the situation around them. Um, if this is correct, the temple has been destroyed. I don't think we feel that. We're so used to there not being a temple 
that the fact that there's no temple there doesn't bother us. You know, we completely are, are comfortable with Jesus taking away our sins, and we don't realize how temples and sacrifice were deeply ingrained into the psyche of, of, of Jews and people everywhere. To lose your temple is to lose your phone call to God, to lose your connection to God. The, 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 the whole mechanism that was meant to keep you and God on good terms is gone. How am I gonna be on good terms with God? Who will intercede for me? I'm exiled, I have no temple. And Hebrews says, Jesus has taken care of all of that. So you may want to preach Hebrews when you're in exile. Now, if, if we're always in exile, then preaching scripture is always preaching in exile. And the question becomes, which mode of exile am I preaching from? As I preach from different texts, I'm preaching in different modes of exile. And I thought about, okay, how can I kind of categorize some of the modes of exile within scripture? And my mind went to uh, the old categories of H. Reinhold Niebuhr, you may know, of Christ and culture. Now, Niebuhr has been crit criticized and, and uh, there have been you know, books written in response to him. There's no question that his categories were, were mid-20th century in his situation. Uh, I've made them my own. In fact, I've added one. Um, and so I'm not in any way uh, wanting to suggest that, th that this is an absolute you know, picture on, on the different ways that Christianity and culture connect to each other. But here are six, six ways that I've suggested that might be modes of exile that relate in some ways to his, to his categories. So the first one, he calls Christ above culture or Christ over the culture. This is where Christianity tries to take over the culture. This is like in the Muslim equivalent of this is Sharia law, where, the gov the, where a Muslim government says, you will obey our understanding of what Islam is. Sometimes Christianity tries to take over the culture and says, we want to force everybody to do our understanding uh, of Christianity. Then there's, I'm calling it desperate assimilation. Um, this is the idea of compartmentalizing your Christianity and, your, and your, your other life. So you, you live one way when you're in work, but then you live another way when you're in church, and you keep, you never the two will meet. You kind of keep your faith in a box that's just for when I'm doing this over here. I have the beliefs, but it doesn't necessarily impact the way I live over, over here. That's, that's his Christ and culture in paradox. Then there's something I'm gonna call principled assimilation. I'm, I'm messing with his categories a little here. This is where I lay low and I don't create waves on all the things that aren't essential. So on essential things, I don't compromise. But on the kinds of things that don't, they're, they're not essential. I'm gonna go along with the culture um, and I'm going to kind of blend in, a kind of defensive strategy. Then there's the separation approach where I basically pull myself out somewhat of, the, I, I think of, the, you know, kind of, they do their thing, I do my thing. Next, this is the one I've added, withdrawal. I go off to the desert and start a monastery, uh, or I move to Marion, Indiana. Um, you know, we, 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 we start a college in central South Carolina where there's no sin because nobody lives there. Um, this is the kind of withdrawal, I withdraw, I withdraw from the world. 
then of course everybody always picks his fifth one, which is Christ transforming the world. That's what we all think we are. We can't all actually be this, but this is what we all say we are. When, if, you, if you give any group of Christian a test, which one of these are you, we'll all pick Christ the transformer uh, of, of culture. I'm gonna call this an influence uh, approach. Now, the first two, I wanna suggest probably aren't models of exile very often at all. I wanna suggest that most of the time, maybe all the time, we should not try to take over the culture and we should not completely compromise with the culture. I'm gonna suggest that those are two models of exile that probably we shouldn't. Now, there is a biblical model for taking over the culture. Joshua and the land of Canaan, uh, there, was a, there was a go in, conquer, take over. And as far as I can tell, that's a fairly unique biblical event. Um, I may be missing something, but I can't really think of any other instance in the history of God's people where God has say, said, go in and take it all over. Although, I think in the end, this ends up being a withdrawal. Why do they go in and take over the land? So that they can isolate themselves from the surrounding people. And so even their temporary assertion in conquering the land of Canaan serves the purpose of withdrawing from the evil influences that are around them. Now, there may be some times when God wants us to assert ourselves in a, in a way in, in culture. I think, I think I heard one last night when Steve was talking about his church uh, up in Michigan and how they had an underground, they, they worked in the underground uh, slavery, uh, underground railroad, uh, to try to get slaves into Canada out of the United States. That was against the law, of course. That was illegal. They weren't supposed to do that. They were defying the authorities. That's a kind of, of forceful assertion um, that we may be called on. I know that there's, I heard some, some pastors, uh, when, when the whole election happened last year, I heard some pastors wrestling with the question of whether or not if the government tried to deport some of the people in their church and rip families apart, would they feel like they needed to hide those individuals in, in their homes? So there may be some uh, Christians today who are thinking, I need to do this uh, to protect others. I think... This, this mode is always in service of others. So it's not, it's not in defiance of the government's doing some rule that's wrong. It's usually to help others. It's usually in service of others. This is something I think sometimes is missed about the prophets. That when the prophets prophesied, they didn't prophesy because they like to tell people off, I don't think. I think the prophets primarily prophesied to defend others. And of course, uh, to I, idolatry is one of the major things that the prophets talked against, but, but also this idea of protecting those who are being uh, oppressed uh, by those in, in power. But in general, I don't think this is our dominant mode. In fact, I think we get into trouble when we try to take over uh, the culture around us. There's a, there's a saying that is attributed to Charles Spurgeon. I've tried to see whether this actually happened. I, I wish it did. I, I've not, I've been not been able to track down that Spurgeon actually said this, but I wish he had. Um, but uh, according to the legend, somebody comes to him and says, well, the Roman Catholics, when they were in control of England, killed people, and then when the, when the Anglicans were in charge of England, they killed people. Why didn't the Baptist ever kill anybody? And uh, according to the legend, uh, Spurgeon replied, because we were never in charge. The idea being that if we Baptists had actually ruled England at some point, we probably would have burned people at the stake too. 
The idea is, is that whenever religion takes over the state, most of the time, good things don't happen. Now, I'm not, I'm not quite as anti-Constantine as Alan Hirsch, but I think there's some truth into his claim that once we assimilate our religion with our state, oppression tends to be uh, the natural result of that. So I, w- I would not recommend that we, but maybe the Lord will call you at some point uh, to preach a temporary uh, assertion uh, in relation to your, your context. By the way, here's the second insight, I think, uh, that the Lord wanted me to share this morning as I looked at this. I think there's a tendency, I mean, if you're like me, you grow up kind of quoting memory verses. Uh, and, and when you quote memory verses, you kind of pull the verses out of the Bible and you kind of put them in this timeless bu- bubble and, and apply them to all times and, and all places. And I don't think that's, that's bad if, if, uh, if you have a, a certain kind of spiritual common sense uh, that hopefully is what our churches are, are developing uh, in, in the preaching that we, we do. Um, however, if you, I, I'm actually... Um, missing right now a class called inductive Bible study. Uh, and in inductive Bible study, our goal is to learn to read the Bible in context for what it actually meant at a particular time and place. And what I've come to believe is that God has done us in Revelation, in Scripture, something far better than one book from him to me. God has given us 66 books that addressed specific people at specific times and specific places with specific problems over a thousand years in three languages all over uh, the, the Mediterranean world. And what this does is, is because the Bible not only can be one word from God to us, but all these different words to different people at different places, he has given us a library from which he can speak to us directly all over the place. I'm not communicating this yet. Let me try it again. There are First Peter times. There are times when First Peter jumps across 2,000 years and says, this is First Peter. This is the time. This is the day to preach First Peter. This is a First Peter time. Now, there may be some Joshua times too, but there will be, there will be times when certain books of the Bible speak more directly and powerfully to the people of God than other books do because God inspired that book for this kind of time. If he'd have just done it all flat, it would be gray. If he'd just done it all, let's find the common denominator for all times and all places. That would have been very kind of general and and blah. But what God did is he inspired uh, Isaiah for this time and Jeremiah for this time and Nahum for this time. And so when there's a Nahum day, Nahum Nahum has been waiting. How many of you preach from Nahum lately? Nahum has been waiting for a time and a place when God wanted to jump across the pages of history and speak to your congregation in its particular moment of exile. That's the second insight that I think the Lord wanted me to share this morning. And of course, it's not just a time. God may want you as a pastor to preach a particular text, and another pastor to preach a different text. It is in this this harmony of all of us doing what God wants us to do that the fullness of truth that is bigger than our minds can understand can can be approached. So there there may be times of temporary assertion in exile, 
desperate assimilation. I, I, really, I, I really question whether there's ever a time for this. I tried to think, okay, is there a point in Scripture where, where somebody crossed a line that I would feel very uncomfortable with? The only thing I could come up with was Esther, and I'm not sure it's true about Esther, but there are some things that are kind of, huh, about, about the book of Esther. Um, if, uh, if you read it in Hebrew, for example, you have this house of the virgins and this house of the concubines, and they go into the king from the house of the virgins at night, and they come back to the house of the concubines in the morning. Now, it doesn't take too much reading between the lines to figure out what Esther is participating in here. This is, this is kind of suspicious. In, in, in fact, you know that Esther wasn't found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. All the other books of the Old Testament were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, but not Esther. I don't know if you know this, but the Greek version of Esther has extra passages. If you're a Roman Catholic, your Greek translation of Esther has passages where there are prayers. Do you know the, the word God isn't used in the book of Esther? Uh, I mean, I think he's there, don't get me wrong but he's not specifically mentioned in the book of Esther. At least Jews, at least the Jews have always found Esther a little, a little, what's up here? Now, um, now I believe Esther's inspired scripture. I'm, that's, not, that's not my point. Uh, but, but Esther is the only, the only kind of desperate assimilation passage that I could, I could really come up with, if, and it may, not, it may not even be that. Is there ever a time for us to do that when we're in exile? Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie Silence um, uh, about uh, Japanese missionaries uh, who, uh, one missionary in particular, uh, who recanted his faith not to save his own skin but to save the lives of other uh, Japanese Christians who were being killed if he wouldn't recant. You know, I don't know. Should he have done that? Uh, God, God knows. I don't know. Um, I've heard, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that some of, the, um, some of those uh, in authority in the Russian Orthodox Church during the Bolshevik Revolution uh, did some serious compromising uh, with regard to the faith, uh, but the Russian Orthodox Church survived the, the Bolshevik re re Revolution. Did they do right? I'm not going to say they did. Um, I, have high, I have high questions about whether that's ever something that we should preach or, or do, but it's on the list, and I'll let you wrestle with it um, as the Lord wrestles with you. Now, all these others, all these others, I think I can find biblical texts that relate in one way or another uh, to these others. So, I think of First Peter as being a not not compromising on principles. First Peter does not in any way compromise on principles, but it does seem to me, as Scott McKnight uh, has suggested, that First Peter embodies a certain defensive strategy in the face of opposition and persecution. How do we know uh, that 1 Peter uh, was written during a time of, of hard times, of persecution? For me, the biggest clue is in the, in the last chapter of 1 Peter, where Peter says that this was written from Babylon. Now, there have, of course, been some who have thought that, that Peter was actually in Babylon writing this. It's possible. Um, I personally think that Babylon is a code word for Rome because we do know that the Jews came to, to, to call Rome Babylon. You can see the parallel. Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. Rome eventually would destroy Jerusalem, although that happened after Peter was gone. But apparently, the temperature has heated up enough, even in Peter's day, for Rome to be called Babylon. In fact, 
I think it's in chapter four where Peter says, judgment has begun with the house of God, and if it's this bad for us, I can't imagine what it's gonna be like for everybody else. And so Peter felt like it was a time of judgment for the house of God, and he, and, and I think we have good reason to believe that Rome was the source of that sense of, of, of exile. Um, now, there have been some scholars, you know, you can't throw a rock and not hit a scholar who thinks something bizarre. Um, but um, uh, there are some scholars who think that they were literally exiles. There are some scholars who think that they had literally been kicked out into Asia Minor, Bithynia, Cappadocia, Pontus, uh, that they were literally exiles. I, I personally think that this is yet another passage, like Hebrews, that is saying you are exiles because you don't belong to this worldly and earthly regime. You don't belong here. And it seems to me that 1 Peter's instructions are abstain from sinful desires. Okay, so this is not, this is not compromise on principles. Live, this is, I think, the key verse of, Hebrew, of uh, 1 Peter. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So one of the things that Peter says is don't give somebody an actual reason to criticize you. They're gonna criticize you. They're gonna beat you. They're gonna treat you wrongly. But may it never be because you deserve it. May you live such good lives out there among the nations that if they treat you badly, they will have to confess on the day of judgment, I was completely in the wrong. Now, 1 Peter, some of its defensive strategies, you know, first, let me, let me say this. In the middle of the 1800s, when, when the Wesleyan Methodists were, were preaching abolition, that was not a 1 Peter day. That was a day for Joshua. That was a day for um, temporary assertion, in my opinion, when, when the Wesleyan Methodists were preaching against slavery in the early 1800s. First Peter didn't jump out at them during that day. That was a Joshua uh, day. First Peter says, hunker down. It's gonna get bad. Incoming, that's First Peter. First Peter says, are you a slave whose master beat you? Remember, Jesus was beaten unjustly too. Are you a wife with an unbelieving husband? Don't worry about it because the days are coming when everything will be set to right. So 1 Peter doesn't, in 1 Peter days of exile, it's not time to change the world. We're not gonna be world changers in the days of 1 Peter. 1 Peter are for days when we're just doing our best to be the people of God under intense persecution. So that's one kind of preaching from exile. You may have a, a time when you have a first Peter uh, exile moment of preaching. Now I've called this one separation. I find this, this very interesting, and this is, I think, Paul's operating mode. How does Paul, now Paul's a little bit before Peter, uh, well, he's a little bit before first Peter, I'll put it that way. So Paul is writing this to Corinth in the early uh, 50s, so maybe you know, 10 years or so before first Peter or more. Um, and here's what Paul says to the Corinthians. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I didn't mean people of the world. Man, you'd have to go to another planet to get away from sexually immoral people in the world. <laughs> I'm writing to you not to associate with people who claim to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? 
Are you not to judge those inside the church? God will judge those outside. You see how he basically, he, he's not thinking we need to pass some legislation you know, to, to outlaw sexual immorality in Rome. That wasn't even on the books. For Paul, it's we are the church. We are distinct from the world. We are in the world. We are not of the world. We need to make sure that we don't have any yeast in our house. We need to make sure that we are, are staying holy. We need to make sure that we are being faithful. We need to make sure that the integrity of the church is intact. God will take care of the world. That seems to be Paul's uh, basic approach here. Now, now, don't get me wrong. Paul's still evangelizing. Paul hasn't lost the rest of the donut. He's evangelizing. He's, he's out there doing tent, you know, tent making. He's making, literally, he's making tents. That's where we get it from, right? He's out there in the marketplace making tents, and while he's making leather kinds of things, he's saying, by the way, have you heard about this Jesus uh, that came uh, over in, in Jerusalem just a few years ago? So this is not an end to evangelism. Paul hasn't stopped spreading the good news. In fact, he's spreading the good news in the church of that day called the synagogue. Because remember, the church is always in exile. The synagogue may be worshiping Yahweh, but not everybody in the synagogue is in the synagogue. So Paul is evangelizing the synagogue, and Paul is evangelizing the marketplace. He's not lost the outside of the donut, but in terms of his view of the world, he's, that's a different place. I, I always, um, uh, Keith Drury, if you know him, uh, he, he talks about how his father, uh, during every election, would say, I wonder who they'll elect this time. Um, uh, Keith Drury's father always viewed the American election as something that the world was, I mean, he voted, I'm sure, but he always viewed what was happening in the world as a different kingdom uh, than the kingdom that, that he was a part of. By the way, I think Jesus expresses this when they come to him and ask him about paying taxes. And they say, so, should we pay taxes or should we not pay taxes? They're trying to catch him. You know, if he says, don't pay taxes, Romans, come here. Uh, if, if he says, pay taxes, you know, revolutionaries kill this guy. You know, so they think they have him. Uh, and he says, well, show me one of those coins. Whose picture is on it? Caesar. Well, give it back to him. It's his coin. It has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Coinage, money, that's worldly stuff. Give it back to him. Um, this is a is, is similar kind of perspective uh, to that that Paul has here where he basically recognizes, I'm in exile. Let the world do what the world does. I'm gonna focus on, on the church. Now, there is this one step beyond called withdrawal. This is, this is where the Amish go off and live you know, in a community or the Shakers or Oneida, Oneida New York. We, we kind of withdraw from society and try to you know, kind of form our own little safe space uh, away from the world. This is the passage that came to mind. This is also Paul. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. You probably think of this as the don't date non-Christians passage. Uh, uh, but, of, but of course... Of course, that's not specifically what Paul's talking about here. Uh, this is much, much broader than anything like this. This is about um, business relationships. This is about who you hang out with in your, in, in your, in your private time. Um, what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? What does fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Therefore, come out from them and be separate, uh, says the Lord. To me, the best example of this is Israel itself. Uh, in the Old Testament, of Israel itself in Egypt. You remember how in Egypt that the Egyptians hate shepherds. Remember, this is a bizarre passage for us. You know, that Egyptians hate shepherds, and so they made sure uh, that uh, the Israelites stayed apart from them. They're trying to keep themselves clean. 
you know, but God actually is keeping Israel safe uh, from the influence of, of Egypt. And so when Israel came into the land, Israel um, also isolated itself. So is there a time for this? I don't think now's the time for this, but I, I wouldn't want to say that there won't be a time uh, when, these, when this, this withdrawal will, will leap off the pages of Scripture uh, to some church in exile. The last one, Christ transforming, Christ changing the world, Christ wooing. I think that we, we have to do this all the time. No matter what form of exile we might be in, we need to be wooing the world for Christ. I love this passage in Philippians. I've often told you before, I now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Um, our citizenship is in heaven. That is such a profound statement to somebody who's in Philippi because Philippi is a Roman colony. If you're a citizen of Philippi, you're automatically a Roman citizen. And Philippi itself, largely, its inhabitants were largely soldiers who had been resettled there as a reward for serving for the Roman armies. It's kind of a deal that if you will serve the Roman army, we will give you your own citizenship and your own property in, in this nice little town in, in Macedonia named Philippi. And so there was a certain kind of pride to be a, a Roman Philippian. Being in that city meant that you had a special connection with Rome that other cities didn't have. And yet, Paul says, our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is not here in Philippi. Our citizenship is in heaven. I think God has an influence model. I'm a Wesleyan Arminian. I think that God doesn't try to force the world to serve him. I think his mode is to try to woo the world uh, to serve him. And when the world goes astray, God doesn't snap them back in line, but he abandons them up. As Romans 1 says, he gave them up. God gave them up. They chose not to glorify God as God. He gave them up. They chose not to do this. He gave, he gave them up. And so the model that I think God models in Scripture for all of us continuously in exile is one of wooing the world to Christ, not of trying to force the world to become Christian, but of trying to woo the world. Uh, they see us. They see what we're like. They see our love. They see the way we treat one another, and they feel, I want that. I don't know what it is. What's, what's with you? There's something different about you. What's, what's with you? That's what I think we should always be, no matter what form of exile we're in.